but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. All right, everyone, and welcome back into another installment here of the Minnesota Sports Podcast for the 13th of October here. I'm CJ Baumgartner. We're breaking into all the latest in Minnesota sports here for today. And today is a Wednesday, which means we do our What About Them Wednesdays. And what this segment is, is we take the whole podcast, or at least most of it, and we dive into the competition for our Minnesota sports teams. We look at divisions, we look at rivals, we just look at the competition around them, just kind of take a step outward and look at them, and should we be worried about them, and just kind of our thoughts on them going forward, these uh, Minnesota sports teams competition. So with that, let's start with the Vikings. Let's dive right here into the NFC North. We're going to be breaking down our thoughts on each of the three NFC North teams that the Vikings are competing against. And let's talk about the team that the Vikings just played, the Detroit Lions. This team is in last place. They're going to finish in last place. They're 0-5 or whatever the record is. The team, through watching them, they looked like they were a team in year one of a three-year rebuild. Jared Goff isn't the answer. You can tell with that team. And we'll get to him in a second. But you can just tell this is a team that's like, let's take some time. Let's figure ourselves out. Let's try and get some continuity. Let's try and build a culture that's kind of Dan Campbell's thing. And let's see what we have this year and kind of just go from there and see where we need to start in terms of reshuffling the roster. And you can see that with this team that one of the places that maybe they look to is quarterback, and Jared Goff, I mean, he didn't play particularly well. He didn't play bad, but he didn't play particularly well. You can definitely tell that Sean McVay had a big, big impact on how well Jared Goff played, and even then you could kind of see some uh, chinks in the armor, some kinks in the armor, whatever the whatever the proper wording is, um, but you know what I mean. He, he is, hasn't been particularly good, but he still has a giant contract that the Lions are offering to pay for, in turn for getting some of those sweet, sweet draft picks that are going to help in their rebuild in the Matthew Stafford trade. But when Goff's contract is up, I could very well see the Lions just basically hanging on to Goff for the time being and just kind of biding time until they figure out the quarterback they want for the future. And what that means is it's a kind of Cleveland has tried to do this in their rebuild. Uh, before they drafted Baker, they kind of brought in guys like Deshaun Kaiser and, and uh, Tyrod Taylor and uh, maybe Tyrod Taylor showed up later, but the point with Josh McCown, you just kind of had these guys that were filler. They were just playing the position, and they just kind of kept band-aiding their way through. Now, the problem was is it was really bad, and they were clearly tanking. The Lions aren't necessarily tanking. They're just reevaluating, and they're just not a good football team. But I can see the Lions very well with, uh, with Jared Goff just kind of having this advantage of, you know, we have a guy who can play quarterback. He won't shipwreck us. We're just going to keep rolling. He keeps the wheels on the bus so we can figure out how good our offense is or not. And then as the years go on, once Goff's contract gets close to being over, when he has like one year left on his contract, boom, we draft a quarterback. Goff either plays for a year or the young guy comes in halfway through the season, and then we don't have to pay Goff a bunch of money to sit the bench. So I think that that's probably the plan. And maybe they like Goff. Maybe they keep him on. I hope they do as a division opponent. But – 
if I was a division opponent, but I feel like Goff is just kind of a stopgap, and he's just going to be a very large stopgap in terms of the time he's going to fill in being the quarterback of that team. Their defense is a mess. They have some good offensive line pieces. Now, they're all hurt, but they have some good offensive line pieces, and those running backs that they have aren't particularly bad either. They just again, are on such a bad team. But I think the Lions do have a few pieces. It's going to take a couple of years before they really turn that ship around if everything points in the right direction. And knowing Detroit hasn't really worked out for them. But let's see what they have. Let's see what the Lions can do with that. But again, they're in year one of a very long rebuild. Goff is kind of a stopgap. And their defense is a mess. They have nothing... I mean, they have the offensive line. That's probably the best thing that they have going is the amount of prospects that they've been putting in there. They have Taylor Decker. They have Frank Ragnow. They have Penny Sewell. Uh, all these different pieces that just all has to kind of gel together, and we'll see if they can do that. And the thing with Dan Campbell is just turning around the culture. They have, they have the heart, I think, the first five games through the first month and change of the season. You have seen them play hard. Now, whether that's first-year head coach, you know, everybody's trying to play hard because – they want to make sure that they impress the new guy if it's kind of that beginning of the season optimism. And then as you get to the middle part of the year, it kind of wanes. And then by the time you get to December, January, everybody's looking to catch their flights for the offseason. With Matt Patricia, their team is zoned out after like the first week of the season. Like it wasn't even close. Like it basically was just... You know, they got through two games. They're like, all right, yeah, we're bad. This head coach doesn't know what he's doing. We want to get him fired. Let's just not play that hard. With Dan Campbell, I think they are playing hard, and I think that's showing. And I think if if anybody is going to turn around the culture, Dan Campbell definitely has the prospects to do it. He kind of – he either is going to be like a real leader that gets behind his players and does all that stuff, or he's kind of that used car salesman that keeps, you know, throwing out the kneecaps thing. But – I think he's I think he's genuinely won over a few of the Lions players. I think, you know, him crying, I don't know if that helps or not, but after they they lost to the Vikings, but man, I'd cry if I was stuck in Detroit too, coaching the Lions. But uh you know, just I don't know if that wins players over, if they see that he cares. I think if he can win over the locker room, I think that's a big thing because Matt Patricia was never able to do that, and honestly I don't fault the players. Dude was a clown. All right, let's talk about uh, the Bears here. And one last thing in the Lions. Just again, we'll see if they buy into Campbell at the end of the season and it looks like they're playing hard. Then at least you know that the things turn in the right direction and it's up to them to get the right pieces in there. But this team isn't good. I think we just need to, to keep it at that. With the Bears, Justin Fields this week made a couple nice plays, but he's still a very raw quarterback prospect who, again, probably shouldn't have started the season. But, again, from Nagy, it was just that reluctance to never name Fields the starter or to never even consider him, which is bad because you want to give him the reps. They basically just gave the first team reps right to Andy Dalton. But Fields, is he's made a couple nice plays with the legs, with the arm, but he's still very raw. He's going to take some time. He's going to make a lot of mistakes yet still. The one thing, the one part of this Bears team that doesn't make a lot of mistakes is their defense. The Bears defense is legit. They're going to be a problem for the Vikings, by the way. You think that just because Justin Fields is the quarterback that the Vikings aren't going to have issues against the Bears. Vikings had issues against Mitch Trubisky-led Bears, and uh, this defense is still just as good. And if the Vikings aren't careful, careful, they don't have a good enough game plan to stop some of these pass rushers, uh, it's going to be a problem. The Bears pass rushers have always been a problem for this Vikings offensive line. 
and we're going to see if that continues when the Vikings play the Bears. It's not till very later in the season, but they're going to have to figure out what to do because the Bears' defense looks to be as good as it has been the last couple years, and I know that they're wasting it right now, but this team can still beat the Vikings, I think. So the Vikings are going to be competing with the Bears for second place. I think the Vikings are a better team on paper. I think they're more positioned to win now just based on their quarterback situation because Cousins is a veteran. But that being said, the Bears are still capable of beating the Vikings. It was a nice win that the Bears got over Vegas, but just remember that Vegas is overrated. Plus, they were going through some stuff. Uh, not going to get into that because it's not a Minnesota sports thing. But, yeah, the Bears caught the Raiders at a really good time that there was a lot of chaos going on that week and just chaos with the Raiders in general and the Raiders pulling a, you know, classic, we start really hot and then cool off and then we finish about 500 kind of team. But the Bears have some, again, the Bears could, they have that outside shot of competing if things go their way. The Vikings, I think, have a better position to do that because of just not having a rookie quarterback. But let's not pretend that the Bears uh, are incapable of making a run or incapable of beating the Vikings because of that defense that they have. All right, lastly, looking at the Packers here on this What About Them Wednesdays here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast, taking a look here at this game against Cincinnati that they had that was just wild, a wild and weird game. I caught the overtime period, and man, oh man, was that crazy. Five missed field goals in like the overtime slash fourth quarter alone or whatever it was, it was a lot. McPherson, the kicker for Cincinnati, acting like he made it while celebrating and even though he missed it, and Mason Crosby missing like three field goals that day. Just all of the chaos that ensued was weird. Now the Packers ended up winning, but there are a couple things that we can take away from that game from a Vikings perspective. Is that Mason Crosby, let's look at the kicking game. Remember, the Packers have had Mason Crosby be their kicker forever. And before, you know who was their kicker? Uh, Ryan Longwell. And Vikings fans remember he was the last consistent kicker that they had. Um, he was a consistent kicker for the Packers as well. So the reason Crosby has been around so long is because he has the ability for when he has a game where he misses a bunch of kicks, he has the ability to get back on the field, throw all of those misses out and go back and do the exact same thing and try it again. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it kind of depends on the situation. But when you're a kicker like that, Having the mental game is 100% more important than almost anything besides just the ability to kick the ball. But like in terms of whether you want accuracy or power or whatever, I don't care. I'll have a guy who's very men, both those traits, but if I need him to make a 40-yard field goal or a 33 or a 27, he'll make it. And Mason Crosby has that in him. He has that ability to where no matter how bad of a game he's had, he can still go up there and kick like he's been 4-for-4 four four all day long. And that's something that sets him apart from some of the other kickers. Vinatieri had that same thing. You're just able to throw away all the bad stuff and keep rolling with it. And that's what killed Blair Walsh is he wasn't able to overcome mentally his mistakes. He just let it fester and build on top of each other and eventually snowball him out of Minnesota and out of Seattle eventually too. And you look at Daniel Carlson, it's the exact same thing with Minnesota. Now he went to Oakland and he was able to turn it around. But it still is a situation where he's just able to, Mason Crosby is able to just compartmentalize and take all those misses and forget about them and go in and just kick. And that's what makes him 
one of the best kickers in the NFL. But one thing, another thing that this loss or uh, that this uh, win for the Packers proves is that that loss against Cincinnati doesn't look as bad as maybe it did in week one. In week one, you were like, oh my gosh, you lost to the Bengals. This was terrible. This was bad. Oh my goodness. The Bengals, now granted, a lot of their wins haven't been super impressive, and they've had a couple losses, but they're a team that can play. They're they're not the hapless, they're not the bungles of the last couple years, and that's because of Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow is a dude. He is a guy that is going to be a good quarterback. He's going to be one of those guys, maybe not to the level of Andrew Luck, but a guy in that sphere or a guy with that same ability to raise the level of play for his team. The Bengals were a mess without Joe Burrow last season, and now they got some better pieces, and Jamar Chase is really good and all that kind of stuff. But the ability of Joe Burrow as a signal caller to just lead the offense and, by extension, the team is incredible, and that's that's great to see for the health of the league and for the health of the Bengals, if uh, you care about them. But Joe Burrow is going to be a dang good quarterback in this league if he can stay healthy. And the loss to Cincinnati doesn't look as bad based on the way that they how tough they played the Packers. So it doesn't help. The Vikings still should have won that game. It's not really into moral victories, but it just is something to look at and say, at least that loss isn't as bad as it felt at week one, as demoralizing as it felt. But still, it's one that you should have had. And I'm not even going to say the refs on that one because I rarely do I think a game really goes down to the refs. I think it's just more on the Vikings shouldn't have been in a position where Dalvin Cook fumbling could have cost them the game. They should have just outright won it in regulation by being a better football team that day, which they were, and which I still think the Vikings are. I think if the Vikings play the Bengals again, I think the Vikings win. But the Vikings made too many mistakes and shot themselves in the foot, and that's how you allowed Cincinnati to win. But the Packers almost losing to them at home as well shows that they're a tougher matchup than maybe the Vikings realized or maybe us uh, who follow the Vikings realized. But I still think the Packers are going to win this division. I think that's what comes down to this. The Packers are a flawed team, but they still have Aaron Rodgers as quarterback, and they still play in the NFC North, where, as it looks right now, they are going to just walk to that division title, which sucks to say, and it sucks to see. But yeah, the Packers are uh, the Packers are doing it. So they're probably going to win this division, and because of how weak it is, they might get a chance at a bye. We'll kind of see the Rams, and Cardinals are playing really well, and uh, the, East, the East, it looks like Dallas is going to come out on top, and then Tampa Bay is still lighting the league on fire. So it's going to be interesting to see around the NFL, but the Packers could be in a position, if they have kind of the softer part of the schedule, they can definitely rattle off some wins here throughout the rest of the season, which again, isn't fun to say, but it's just, it's just how it is. So with that, I want to finish up this What About Them Wednesday part by stepping aside from the What About Them Wednesday for a second here, just to talk about Christian Derrissaw quickly. It might be time to go with Derrissaw. Rashad Hill can't start more than a half of a season. I mean, he's just not that kind of player. Rashad Hill is a nice swing tackle. He's a nice backup piece. He's a good guy that if, you know, Reef or not Reef, if Derrissaw or O'Neal gets hurt, and if Reef got hurt in the past, he was a guy who could come in, step in for a game or two, and be serviceable. He wasn't going to be great. He was obviously going to get, you know, beat by the better guys, but he would be able to hold his own and at least not be a TJ Clemmings revolving door turnstile, whatever, uh, whatever replacement word you want to use. But... 
Rashad Hill isn't meant to start a whole season. He's not meant to be a long-term starter. And that's the thing with quarterbacks, too. There are some quarterbacks, you know, Case Keenum and some of the other guys in that category who, for a few game stretches, can play for you. They can hold the fourth down. But if you're expecting him to start a whole season, good luck. And I think that's kind of the same case with Rashad Hill. And the Vikings never planned on Rashad Hill starting this whole season. I think the plan was always going to be let Rashad Hill start. And then maybe by the bye week, about this time of the season, or maybe a little bit before, start to work in Derisaw and start to figure things out with him. But he's been injured. He hasn't been able to be on the field a lot. He didn't play a single snap of preseason, didn't play a lot in training camp because of injuries. He finally kind of was working his way back. He got a few snaps in on Sunday. He didn't look half bad, by the way. Uh, He was able to hold his own. He was on a touchdown scoring drive. He was the left tackle for that one. Um, and I think the biggest thing that showed is Darisaw went in for a snap and then Rashad Hill came back in. And again, this is anecdotal data. I can't sit here and tell you X and Y and PFF or whatever, but the very next play, Kirk Cousins gets sacked and who do you see? But you see Dar- or you see Rashad Hill on the ground, like his face in the turf and Kirk Cousins getting sacked by a Lions pass rusher. And I think that was the point where I was like, you know, I was... I said it on the podcast last week. I think Darisai, you got to slow cook him a little bit. But I think now, after watching that and after seeing how the Vikings handled him, I think that kind of mix him in a little bit and slowly ramp him up. I think that's a good strategy. I think, one, it means less snaps that Rashad Hill is on the field. And two, you don't box yourself in to where you start Darisaw. And then you, if he struggles, you feel like you have to go back to Hill and ruin his confidence or whatnot, that you just kind of keep Rashad Hill there. You swap in Darisaw every other drive or something like that, or give him in a few plays. And then once you feel Darisaw is ready to start, you don't have to start him early. You just start him when you feel comfortable. And if you start a game and Darisaw struggles, then you just slowly fade him out, put Rashad Hill in, lower his snaps a little bit, and then just say, hey, we just want you to work on X and Y, focus on that in practice this week. You can kind of slow cook that a little bit. And I think that if the Vikings are going to do that, which if they're – if they're going to continue what they did last week, it looks like that's the plan. I think that that's actually pretty smart. I think that's the way that you should handle it. Now, again, the best laid plans often go awry, so who knows if that's how it actually works. With the Vikings' luck, Rashad Hill probably gets injured, and Darissa has to come in and play a bunch, and it'll just kind of be a trial by fire like it was for Brian O'Neill, but we'll have to see. I think... I just think that that's the way to go is just to slowly work him in and to slowly get him those snaps. Because, again, he's got it. There's two kinds of in shape. We talked about it with Anthony Barr last week as a linebacker, but it's true as a left tackle as well. There's two kinds of in shape. There's being in shape, and then there's being in football shape. Christian Derrissaw is in shape. I don't think that's a problem. I think he's not in game shape, going at game speed, going against NFL defenders, not just NFL defenders. But remember, Derrissaw was working in with the twos when he was in there going against starting caliber defensive linemen, and especially with a stretch coming up where you have the Ravens, the Chargers. I mean, you have the Bosa. You have to play both Bosas at some point in the season. And you best think that they're going to try and pick on the rookie left tackle. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with Derrissaw. But to get him in that game shape is important more than just being in shape and getting him used to that. All right, let's talk here about the Minnesota Twins as we work into our discussion on this What About Them Wednesdays. And I just want to talk quickly about this um, with the What About Them Wednesdays. I want to talk a little bit about the White Sox because uh, I kind of proved it. I said, hey, 
You know, this White Sox team, they're not all as good as people make them advertised. The White Sox are not as good of a team as everyone wants to make them think. Now, they're not, they're one of the most talented teams in the playoffs, and they just got eliminated yesterday, but they, are, they were one of the most talented teams in that playoff group. I mean, the hitting that they have, the top-end pitching, it's great. But the thing is, is they weren't able to put it all together. And that was kind of the thing when you hire, I mean, from the owner's perspective, if you're going to hire Tony La Russa, the old manager, the thought would be that he's got the experience to tie the room together. And honestly, it kind of felt like the Wolves with Thibodeau, where, yeah, you have an experienced veteran coach, but at the same time, if the players don't buy in to the experienced veteran coach, then you just have a guy out of touch with your team trying to boss them around and it just doesn't work. Now I'm not saying I'm not in the Chicago White Sox locker room. I I don't even follow the their beat reporters closely enough to say that there was a fractured relationship. But even starting out, Tim Anderson was a little kind of on edge about uh, the LaRusa hiring. Everybody was kind of just you know, there were a lot of other candidates that the White Sox could have went with, and for them to go to Tony LaRussa felt like the owner was just doing LaRussa solid because the owner liked LaRussa, and LaRussa saw that the White Sox were going to be good, and he kind of wanted to cash in on that. So I I think it was just a little bit of glory chasing for LaRussa, and it kind of showed. And I'm not saying that he didn't try. I'm not saying that maybe he doesn't care for his team. That's not what I'm implying. I'm just implying that it just never felt like it was going to work. And I talked about the Chicago White Sox were a boom or bust team at the beginning of the season. They were either going to win the division and be good, or they were going to implode because of their managerial situation. And in a way, they kind of got a little bit of both as the season went on. They were good. They won 90-plus games. They won 93. They won the division. But this week of an AL Central, they should have been – I said they should be won 100 games, even if I'm – maybe if I'm being a little bit too high of expectations – why they didn't win 96 or 97 plus games? Why they only won 93? Why they didn't even get close to sniffing that 100 win mark in that bad of a division was because of how bad they played against winning teams. And when that got shown to light, they played Houston. Now they their offense was there a little bit in especially in the middle couple games, but I mean the the White Sox just didn't really have the pitching to match up with Houston's hitters. I mean, Houston is a tough team. I, I also want to say that Houston has as good a shot of any to win the World Series. They have it all. But this White Sox team could have put up more of a fight than getting a gentleman's sweep against the Astros. And keep in mind, they got crushed in that Game 4, which when a team gets crushed like that in Game 4, kind of shows that, uh, and again, I'm coming from a person who follows the Twins, the Twins have won a playoff game or whatever, I acknowledge that. I'm just trying to say, though, from watching other sports, too, it's like you lose the first handful of games, you get down, your back's against the wall, you win one game because the other team maybe takes their foot off the gas, and then they're like, okay, cool, we need to win the series, and then they come back, and then they blow the doors off you in an elimination game, and that's what happened. So I, and I'm focusing a lot in on the White Sox, and I'm just going to talk about the White Sox here uh, in this What About Them Wednesdays for the Twins. But I think it just goes to show you that the White Sox were kind of still frauds. Not frauds as in they shouldn't be a playoff team or they're not talented, but frauds as in that everybody was trying to paint them as this World Series contender, and all they were was just a team that won the division that kind of underachieved. And they were in a big market like Chicago, so everybody's trying to push them, especially when the Cubs weren't good. So they're trying to tap into that Chicago revenue stream. But this is still... 
This is still something where it feels like the White Sox underachieved, and I'm going to say it again. The Twins had a golden opportunity to compete for this division. I'm not even saying win. I'm just saying they had a good opportunity to compete. The AL Central would have been there for them to at least attempt to take if they didn't implode the way the Twins imploded. And that, I think, is the biggest thing I'm going to keep coming back to. 93 wins for the White Sox. Imagine if the Twins play them. The White Sox own the Twins a lot this season. Imagine if the Twins were just able to play better against the White Sox this season and able to not implode as much as they did. They they have a good shot to at least... They, the wild card was tough this year. You know, who knows if they get a wild card spot. They would have had to win the same amount of games as the White Sox to win the division. But they would have at least been in the hunt. And that's just where I feel like the Twins blew a missed opportunity to really take advantage of a weak AL Central and win the division. And a Chicago team that took on the mantle that everybody was waiting for them to take on, but it felt like they still weren't ready yet, or at least if they are, that they weren't clicking as good as they should have. And that I, that'll be interesting to see. The White Sox, I'm sure, are going to try and add another piece in free agency. I'm sure the checkbook is going to be open for the Reinsdorf family, but it's still going to be interesting to see what the White Sox do because – they're, they're going to come in as favorites to win the division next year, and rightfully so. But if the Twins are serious about competing, they have a chance. Them and Detroit, we talked about Detroit kind of on the rise a little bit here. But again, the Twins still have a lot of veteran players. They still have Polanco. They still have Donaldson. They still have Sano. They still have Garber. They still have Buxton, Kepler. They still have a lot of these pieces from the playoff runs they just had a couple years ago. They don't have as especially if they trade Buxton. They won't have Buxton, Barrios, kind of Cruz, all that kind of stuff. But there still is a lot of pieces to compete next season, and the division isn't exactly the White Sox uh, running away. It's just the White Sox to lose. So that's an interesting thing to look at for the Twins and for the rest of this season, or for the rest of the offseason and into next season. The AL Central is still up for grabs, and the Twins would be, unless the Twins are playing for 2023, the Twins should think that they have a shot to compete at the division this year, as long as they make the re- as long as they just avoid all the mistakes that made them implode last season, especially with the pitching staff. But again, Chicago was a paper tiger. I said it the last couple weeks on the podcast, and I'm proven right by the way that they got handled by Houston in the ALDS. They didn't get as they didn't get manhandled as bad as I thought, but they still got down 0-2, squeaked out a game. A game three win, and they got the doors beaten off of them 10 to 1 in game four. Anyway, that means that the ALCS is Astros and Red Sox, which means that I will not be particularly over the top to cheer for either team because the Astros are cheaters. The Red Sox have already won too much lately, and also I don't really care. These are two of the top four markets in baseball, or two of the top five markets. Don't care uh, about these winning, about these big market teams. I guess go Braves. So looking, that's uh, our baseball perspective. Looking now into the Minnesota Wild here, and I'm going to say, uh, just going to look at the stars for this one, the Dallas Stars. And the one thing that the Stars team, you know, they're going to be good. They're going to compete for the playoffs. They made the cup a couple of years ago during the the bubble or whatever you want to call it. Um, But... The biggest, most intriguing part of the Stars, other than the rivalry that obviously comes from Minnesota used to, from the Stars used to be in Minnesota and all that kind of stuff, the new rivalry, the new wrinkle to this rivalry is going to be Ryan Suter is coming for blood. He is coming for 
Minnesota. He picked the Stars because, one, they're a rival, and, two, because they're a rival, they're going to play against the Wild a lot. And you can bet that Ryan Suter is licking his chops at the opportunity to take it out on the Wild. And not necessarily at certain players. Not like It's not like he has beef with Kaprizov or Spurgeon or whatever. Maybe he does, I don't know. But like, there's no, there's no proof that shows that he has beef with any of that. But he has beef with Bill Gurr and the GM. Maybe Dean Evason, but mainly the Wild organization as a whole. Just for cutting him and just kind of the way that things were changing and the way that they uh, handled uh, Parisi's, uh, the end of Parisi's tenure. So I think that there's a lot of things that uh, Suter was upset about. He was very vocal about him, which is part of the reason why the Wild were willing to cut bait with him as well. Even though Suter was still a productive player, by the way, Suter is still going to contribute to the Stars team, and they're still going to be pretty good. Suter made contributions for the Wild, and if he wasn't so close with Parisi, I mean, they signed the contracts on the same day, but if he wasn't so close, if that relationship wasn't so close to the point of when he felt like Parisi was done dirty, he let everybody know about it, there was no way that you were going to be able to keep him on this team when Bill Gurren is a big culture guy, and we're going to talk about that in a second here, but Bill Gurren is a big culture guy, and having a guy who is going to constantly bash the organization in the locker room, and also a guy who might have, and again, I'm not... I don't have any proof to substantiate this, but based on these reports, might have been one of those guys that when the Wild over the last eight years had kind of those mid-season implosions where it felt like everything was falling apart and the locker room infighting and everything, maybe it might have been part of that problem and might have been part of the reason why Bill Gurren is trying to clean house. And he's trying to rebuild the culture, is Gurren. And here's the thing why it's so – culture kind of gets overrated a little bit. In sports, I think sometimes people make a big deal about culture and winning culture and rah, 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 and the slogans and, you know, Minnesota with P.J. Fleck, rode the boat, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, and I say it a lot of times, if you look at a high school program or you look at a college program or a sports thing, talked about it with the Lions. You know, Dan Campbell has to try and change the culture in Detroit. And I think the culture is important. It's not the most important thing. Having a lot of talent is important, and having good coaching staff to make the most out of whatever talent you have is also important. But let's not pretend. I think we overvalue culture sometimes when we talk about it, especially in the sports media sphere. But let's not pretend that culture is meaningless. Let's not pretend that culture doesn't have a value, because let's be honest. If the Wild even had just a decent culture, they'd probably win more than one playoff series in the Parisi Suter era. The problem is, is the culture in those locker rooms was so bad that they would have these implosions. They would just have the infighting, and they would just never feel right. The culture in the Jimmy Butler era in Minnesota is what tanked more than anything. It wasn't Cat being soft. It wasn't Wiggins not being good. It was just that the culture was set up to fail. Because the culture was to put Jimmy in this leadership position that he was not meant to be in, and Tibbs not being a good enough leader to be able to manage all of the infighting. And Bill Gurren knows culture is important. Now, he's won Stanley Cups, by the way, as a player, as an executive. You know, he's, I believe, as a coach, but I know for sure as a, as an, as a player and as an executive, he knows what it takes to win Cups. He knows what it takes. He knows what the locker room needs to be. He knows what it does. And as somebody who's played high school sports, so I can't – that was my highest level in some amateur town ball here and there. But winning teams have good cultures, by the way. Most of the winning teams and the consistently good teams, they have good cultures. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all best friends. It just means that they all get along and they all can work together. There's no infighting. And people – who, you know, whether you have a job or whether you don't, 
you know, when you go to work, your workplace culture isn't the be-all, end-all, but it does matter a lot. And I think that that's what Gurren knows. He knows that to win, you have to be close with each other. You have to have each other's back. And hockey is one of those sports where the traditional sports wisdom plays out better than most other sports. And to have the camaraderie between the guys, it's a long 82-game season. And so the, the point is, is the, the Wild have been in Duluth the last couple days, and they've just been spending days on the ice, like just kind of some easygoing skate practices and spending time along the North Shore, doing all that kind of stuff. And I totally understand why. You get out of the cities, first of all. Duluth is only a two-and-a-half-hour drive up there. You just can relax. It's still a hockey-loving community. So you're going to get some, I mean, the wild love it because it's good PR and you get guys that, you know, you get guys to skate at Amsoil Arena in Duluth, you go up the shore, you play golf, you do whatever, you just kind of relax and enjoy your time. You just, it's kind of a little getaway and I think it's perfect. I think it makes sense and I think it's easy. It's not like, it's not like the wolves on that trip to the Bahamas where it's like, it might be a little too vacation-y. It's not a vacation. It's still like a work trip. It's like when you take work trips, you know, to go do those retreats or do leadership seminars or whatever. There's still a work aspect to it, but it's a very laid back work aspect, whereas the Wolves trip to the Bahamas was more of a vacation. And uh, that also didn't go over, didn't work out as well as the Wolves hoped it did. But again, because the culture with the Wolves being led by Gerson Rosas was not great. And again, Wolves, the culture, the reason why they're not so good. So I think Dean Evison, you know, Getting rid of Suter, him going to the Stars, the Stars are going to be a problem. We talked about that already in the What About Them Wednesday segment here for the Wild. But Gurren knows culture. He knows what it takes to win. And I think that this is just important. Now, am I going to say the Wild are going to win the Cup this season? No. I don't think they will. I think that they'll get into the playoffs and hopefully win a series. And that should be at least the expectation for them this season. But if they want to take that next level, the culture, the the – the feeling you get when you walk in the locker room needs to be there. And it's a perfect opportunity to hit the reset button. Now that you have Kaprizov locked up and Parisi and Suter are out the door. So it's a good opportunity for the wild. And it'll be interesting to watch as the season goes on. Now, lastly here, let's talk about the Minnesota Timberwolves as we go into our, what about them Wednesdays? And I want to take a second here to talk about some of the teams in the Western Conference that the Wolves are competing against. And the thing is, they have the play-in tournament again. So the Wolves need to be, what, about the ninth or 10th best team just to get into the playoffs. And I think if the Wolves can just get into the playoffs, I think that'll be significant. They don't even have to win the play-in game. As long as they get in or competitive in the play-in game, I think ownership, I think, I know, oh, it's kind of weird because obviously Glenn Taylor is still the owner, but he's transitioning out to Laurie and Rodriguez. And they're going to take control of the team in 2023. But I still think it's important because Lori's watching. They still are part owners while they're scraping all the money together. They have some ownership stake. They're just slowly going to take more and more of it. And honestly, if I'm Chris Finch, if I'm Gupta, if I am, you know, whoever in the Wolves that's like watching my back because you, you know, trying to earn my keep, I'm paying attention to what Lori and and Alex Rodriguez think. And I'm trying to win them over. I'm trying to say, hey, look, you're coming into this team. Keep me around. I have things going in the right direction. Once you come in, just help me get, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, a little more resources, kind of come in, help guide us along. But we have the right infrastructure in place to win here. Don't come in here and feel like you need to blow things up right away. And 
I think the Wolves can do that. But the thing is, they have to look at the competition here. They have to look at some of these teams in the West because the West, again, is going to be a gauntlet. You have uh, some... You have some competition here. I mean, you have the usual suspects. Um, you know, you have the Lakers, you have the Jazz, you have uh, you have the Lakers, the Jazz, the Suns, the Nuggets, Clippers. You know, all the those teams are all going to be good. Some teams that are bound for regression this year, I think, could be the Mavericks. Could be one of them. Uh, it's gotten a little te now. Obviously, they went through a head coaching situation. Um, Rick Carlisle's out of there. I believe Jason Kidd is coaching there again. Um, but I think that they are a team that really is set for a regression because they are not growing together. Yes, Jason Kidd is the new coach for the Mavericks. And he used to play for the Mavs and was on the team when they last won a title. But I think it could be a struggle period for them. I think they really could struggle, especially because the Porzingis – Doncic's relationship hasn't been what Mark Cuban wanted it to be, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that is going forward. When you look at the Trailblazers, they're also going through a coaching change. They're really trying to get Damian Lillard to stay, and I think that's this whole season is just trying to convince him to be here long term and to keep building with him. Now they brought in Chauncey Billups to coach the team. We'll see how that works out. I'm not convinced Chauncey's going to be a good head coach right away. If he is, hats off to him. I'm not saying he can't. I'm saying he doesn't really have a ton of past experience, at least to my knowledge. So it's just going to be one of those things where he kind of has to grow into the position a little bit. Not saying he can't, just saying it's going to be a little bit tougher for him uh, coming into that situation. So again, Chauncey Billups walking into a tense situation, trying to keep Damian Lillard happy while also trying to navigate being an NBA head coach. Then you look at a team like the Grizzlies. They're a team that's probably more on the ascendancy with Yamarant, uh, you know, continuing to get better and all that kind of stuff. Um, Jarrett Culver, former uh, Minnesota Timberwolf, uh, is also on that team. But I think the Grizzlies, they're a team that hovered just a little bit above 500. I think could be ripe for the picking if the Wolves wanted to make a play at them uh, in terms of jumping them in the standings. I think they're a team that has that possibility. The Warriors, I think, are going to be better. James Wiseman uh, is going to be in year two. Everybody's healthy now. You have Draymond Green coming back, Steph Curry, uh, but more importantly, Clay Thompson is going to be healthy, and he has been missing since uh, the 2019 season. So to get him back, to get Clay Thompson back, is going to be the most important thing for the Warriors, and I think could propel them back into conversation uh, in the NBA, uh, in the in the in the Western Conference race, I should say. I don't know if it's going to push them into title contenders, but they definitely are going to be back up there and more towards that five to three seed range if they all get healthy. The San Antonio Spurs are a team ripe for the picking, though. They are a team that was below 500. They probably didn't deserve to make the playoffs last year. Again, they were they were not good. They were the 10 seed. They are not really expected to be much better. So I think that the Wolves really can step in. The Spurs are probably going to go into a soft rebuild here. So unless Popovich just keep wants to keep competing. But the Timberwolves have a chance to jump the Spurs. They also have a chance to jump the Kings. The Kings are 31 and 41. Uh, they haven't, again, the Kings are that team that you're always expecting, waiting for them to take the next step, but they never quite do. And then they reset the coach and they reset the team and whatever. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Sacramento. De'Aaron Fox has been good. They have some pieces. It's just it's just wondering if they're actually going to take the next step. And that's what the Timberwolves also wonder too. They're in the same boat. 
The Thunder and the Rockets, I'm not concerned about. They they missed the playoffs. They're both in rebuilds. The Pelicans is another team that's interesting uh, because with Zion, I know they moved a few pieces. Lonzo Ball's not there anymore, but they still have they still have Zion, and it's hard to build around a guy that big who really is only just a post player, but also has some injury history. So I think the Wolves can definitely jump the Pelicans uh, for the end of the season. They have the same record as the Kings. I think if the Wolves play as well as they're expected to, they have the possibility. Again, I'm not going to say it's a for sure thing because, again, I will not trust the Minnesota Timberwolves until they actually prove that they are a capable NBA franchise, until I actually see them winning enough games to get into the playoffs, until I actually see that they're on that path. I am not going to give them the credibility. Even if they start out like 4-0, I'm still going to say I'm going to need to wait till like the All-Star break to be able to say that they're going to be a playoff team or not, or if they're even in that range. But some of these West, some of the lower-end Western Conference teams, there's no Western Conference team that's on the lower half that I think is on the ascendancy. It's all just the top teams still competing, so the Wolves have a chance to slingshot themselves if a couple of these bottom teams regress here. So that'll be interesting to watch. As the NBA season kicks off pretty dang quick, the Wolves have their final preseason game tomorrow. Season starts a week from today, so it'll be interesting to watch going forward. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Minnesota Sports Podcast. This has been a What About Them Wednesdays portion of the podcast. We'll be back more tomorrow. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.